If you can open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, 10 through uh, 14. Let me read that for you. It's a good idea. You know, I want to get some coffee for today's message. Uh, let me read that for you. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith, rather he who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Our series in Galatians has been a personal blessing to me. I've been trying to apply the content of my sermon from this book to my own life by simply trying to trust in the gospel more than I do on a daily basis in the past. This week, especially, I've tried to do that. And do you know what I've discovered? It's not that easy to do. I've realized that exercising faith in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins is a lot harder than ignoring my sins or trusting in my own faithfulness as a substitute for real faith in Christ. I've realized acutely this past week just how little and small my faith in the redeeming work of Christ is. And if you ever realize about this about your own faith, or if you ever do this in the future, then Galatians is a, is a really helpful book for us. Because Galatians is written to, specifically to grow your faith in the power of the gospel. And like many of Paul's epistles, it does so by inspired gospel argumentation and logic. Faith in Christ, as I reminded you last Sunday, is a cerebral faith. God, in Scripture, uses arguments for your mind to strengthen your faith in Christ. Our hearts need to be con convinced constantly, like a jury in a courtroom, by a defense lawyer making some these complex arguments about the righteousness of the gospel, a gospel that is always being accused of being guilty of weakness and irrelevance by our flesh and the devil. Sometimes Scripture uses simple language and simple pictures to grow our faith. Sometimes Scripture uses deep and complex arguments to grow our faith. Both are necessary. If you were building a bridge, you need simple bolts and hammers. You need strong men uh, hammering the bolts into the metal pieces. But you also need engineers and complex math to design the bridge. Bridge. Both kinds of skills are necessary to build a strong and reliable bridge. Today we're getting the engineering side of the building process in order to build this bridge of faith. And so I want to encourage you at, at the outset of this ser sermon to hang on and follow me and work hard to absorb this complex gospel logic that Paul is writing in today's verses. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, different parts of Scripture, and um, it's going to be it's going to be kind of like a, a Bible study. Uh, it's going to kind of be like a seminary class. And so, if you need to stand, you can stand, and uh, I won't be offended. If you need coffee, you can go back and drink as much as you can. You know, um, but hang in there, and I, and I trust that these verses will strengthen your faith in the gospel as much as it has for my faith in the gospel this past week. By way of review, the, the, in the book of Galatians, Paul is writing a, a divinely inspired response to heresy, to a heresy about salvation that has infiltrated the Galatian churches. It was a heresy that taught a certain form of sanctification that contradicted justification. 
exactly, the, to be exact, the Judaizers argue that Jesus' work saves a person at the beginning of their salvation, but to be perfected, you need to follow the law to some degree and belong to the Jewish community by receiving circumcision. In other words, the Messiah brought you into right standing with God at the beginning of your salvation, but in order to be fully accepted by God, you needed to adopt Jewish customs and practices. Without the law, you were incomplete as a believer. And their teaching is summed up in Paul's question in chapter 3, verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So Paul writes Galatians to emphasize that a law-centered sanctification is antithetical to the gospel's power and ability to transform our sinful natures. The gospel can only produce radical change when we are completely dependent on the person of Christ for blessing. And so Paul, in chapter 1, 11 through chapter 2, 21, uh, went about proving the transforming nature of the gospel through the testimony of his life story. He was advancing in Judaism beyond his contemporaries until Christ revealed himself to Paul on the Damascus Road. The gospel immediately compelled Paul to preach Jesus Christ crucified. The gospel empowered Paul to resist the pressure to circumcise Titus in Jerusalem in chapter 2. The gospel gave Paul the power and authority to rebuke Peter when Peter's actions contradicted the grace of the gospel. Then in chapter 2, 15 through 21, Paul established the transformative power and nature of the gospel by describing in detail what Christ-centered sanctification looks like. Paul died to the law when he was crucified with Christ. Dying on the cross demonstrated that the punishment of the law had been completely taken care of. Being crucified with Christ allowed him to end the law's dominion over his life and begin living a life according to Christ alone and not the law. In chapter 3, 1 through 5, Paul appealed passionately to the Galatians' experience He compared their experience with Abraham's experience in verses 6 through 9. The Judaizers were using Abraham as their proof for their false doctrine, so Paul uses Abraham as well, only this time the life of Abraham rightly interpreted. Can you begin with faith and end in law for salvation blessing? Paul begins uh, begins to answer by showing that blessing came to Abraham through faith alone. And that faith was the constant throughout Abraham's life. The book of Hebrews confirmed that for us last Sunday. Full salvation blessing came to Abraham, and it comes to all those who believe through through faith, uh, who believe in Christ alone. Nothing more is necessary. And so last Sunday, Paul began to use the entirety of the Old Testament to prove that the works of the law are not needed to complete your justification in Christ. Paul started with Abraham in chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, and today, in verses 10 through 14, he will continue this trajectory of salvation by faith that started with Abraham. Verses 10 through 14 will show why this trajectory of faith, first established in Abraham, is the only way to to live the Christian life from beginning to end. You'll notice verses, in verses 10 through 14, uh, there's, a, there's a, uh, uh, verses or words that are in capital letters, in all caps, and there's quite a few of them in this section. Some of you have uh, Bibles with uh, red uh, letters, red-lettered uh, words of Jesus in the Gospels. If some of you have Bibles like that, uh, we find an ancient manuscripts that they too, uh, there were uh, a 6th century manuscript where there's red letters, but the red letters are not of Christ's words, they are of Old Testament quotations. And so, to, to, to say it a different way, these Old, these Old Testament quotations are, are, are very important. And in these 
verses, as we kind of go back into the Old Testament, you will learn just how, the, just the way, or, or how the Bible works. The Bible works in a particular way. It doesn't work any way you want to. It, it works in the way it presents itself. And what you'll see is that the, the authors of Scripture, for 2,000 years, as they're writing Scripture, they're, they're interacting with each other. They're building on each other's arguments. And they're creating this long argument from, uh, the the, from the days of Moses to the days of Paul. And they're all working together to bring about the final picture of Christ. And that's what we'll see. In verse 10, Paul declares that anyone who attempts to follow the law to complete their salvation put themselves under a curse. He says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. And this is clear because, Paul says, it is written, according to the Old Testament, that cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Paul's first statement in verse 10 is proven in the second statement of verse 10, a quote from Deuteronomy 27 and 26. So let's go there. Deuteronomy, turn to your, turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 7. This is the law given to the nation of Israel thousands of years ago. And the, 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 this law is, is not as straightforward as, it, as you think. It's not God just saying, okay, obey this and I'll bless you, disobey these laws and I'll curse you. There's a, there's a little more to it than that. And so if you read... Uh, if you look at Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, and there is the original quote. There are 12 curses here. We call this the Dodecalogue. And tw- verse 26 is the, kind of the summary, summary of that. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and then all the people shall say amen. And then... Moses elaborates on the blessing of keeping the law. In verses 1 through 14, you'll notice over and over, Moses says, Blessed shall be in the, in the city. Blessed shall be you in the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground. Blessed shall be when you come in. Uh, if you obey these uh, laws, blessing happens. And then in the next part of chapter 28, you look at the curses of breaking the law, starting in verse 15 and 16. Cursed shall be you in the city. Cursed shall be the offspring of your herd. Cursed shall be when you come in. It goes on and on. Verse 28, God will strike you you with madness. Uh, Verse 31, your ox shall be slaughtered. Verse 34, you shall be driven mad. Verse 42, the cricket shall possess all your trees and the uh, produce of your ground. Verse 45, all these curses shall come on you and overtake you. Verse 53, then you shall eat the offspring of your own body. Uh, Verse 58, if you are not careful to do all the words of this law, to fear this glorious name, then God will bring wondrous plagues on you. On and on, all the way to verse 68. Do you notice the difference? You notice the difference. Moses says, Here, here's a little bit of the blessings. And then he just elaborates on all these curses. And it's Moses' way of telling Israel, hint, hint, this is what's going to happen. I'm predicting your future. You're going to be cursed. Moses is saying that the law is inherently damning. That the law puts you under the power and domination of the curse of God. Because sinners are unable to keep this law. And so if you, if you try to live under the power of the Mosaic Covenant given here, it will necessarily put you under God's curse. There's a hopelessness about the law that, Paul is, that Moses is writing in Deuteronomy and in these chapters. And the rest of Israel's history made this very clear. 
part of Paul's argument in, these, in the verses in Galatians is, hey, look at the history of Israel in the Old Testament. What do you see? You, you just see a cursed nation. And all the prophets of the Old Testament, they simply affirm this cursed condition of Israel. Now look at chapter 28, uh, 64 through 68. This is the culmination of God's curse. The final culmination of God's curse. Verse 64. Moreover, Yahweh will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. What's the culmination of God's curse? It's exile. Exile is the final straw. When Israel goes into exile, it's God's way of saying, this is it. I'm done with you. And so, in Jeremiah, as Israel is about to be exiled by Babylon, he quotes what Paul quotes, Deuteronomy 27-26. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. He says, this is the power of the law. It curses you. And the proof positive of that is that you're going into Babylonian exile. As Paul writes Galatians, Israel is still in exile. They're under Roman occupation. The culmination of curses is is being experienced before the Galatians' eyes. And so Paul says, just read the Old Testament. Where did the law take Israel? Where did it go? They're, they're under a curse today. Israel, look around you. Galatians, look around you. Judaizers, look around you. It's not hard to see where you're going to end up by trying to keep the law to achieve salvation before God. If you look at Israel today in the 21st century, they're still under the same curse. They're still in exile. Ask any Orthodox Jew whether they think they're still in exile, and they will tell you, yes, indeed. You know anything about the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? The Temple Mount was where the Holy of Holies was, the holy place, the inner sanctuary. And today, Jews are not allowed to be in that area. The nearest they can go to their most holy place is the Western Wall. It stops there. They're, they're still in exile. The situation in Gaza continue, shows that you're, you're still in exile. You're still, you're still under a curse. So Paul says, do you, do you really want to go there? Go back to Galatians. And so the, 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 the response Paul anticipates is, well, Just because Israel was cursed by the law doesn't mean we're going to be cursed by the law. Uh, We can do it better. (laughs) They they did it, and they had the law, and they obviously failed, but uh, this time we're not going to fail. And so Paul, anticipating that response, writes verse 11. He says, "Now, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul's logic here is that The the law cannot save you because it is antithetical, it is mutually exclusive to a life of faith prescribed in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And if the when Paul when he brings in these Old Testament quotes, he he brings in the entire context of the book. And in Habakkuk, uh, the the Israel is is about to be exiled by Babylon. They're they're, they're about to face the culmination of all the curses God said in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. And so God says to Israel in Habakkuk 2, verse 4, he says, in verse 11, in all caps, in all capitals, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is a continuation of what he said in verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. When Abraham believed God, it was what? When did that happen? It happened at the beginning of the history of Israel, right? The forming of the nation. 
And when Habakkuk, when God, through Habakkuk, tells Israel, you shall live by faith, what point of, what point of that it, what, what, what point of that is, is, is in Israel's history? It's the end of the nation. They're about to go into exile. So Paul's point is, when he quotes Abraham in verse 6, and Habakkuk in verse 11, the point is, from the beginning to the end, you always live by faith. Israel, history, their nation, from the beginning and the end, it always needed to be a life of faith. Because faith is different than law. The power of faith is different and superior to the power of law. You're in the wrong room. You're in the wrong economy, Paul says. You're saved by faith alone. We're in the finished work and power of Christ from the beginning of our lives to the end of our lives. Your justification is a one-time, perfect, irrevocable, sufficient reality. The final argument that Paul uses to show that the law cannot provide any salvation blessing to you is found in verse 12. So the, the imaginary objector to Paul's argument is, is thinking, well, verse 12, what about a law that comes out of faith? What about this a mixture of law plus faith? Like verse 3 of chapter 3. And Paul, anticipating this imaginary objector and argument, he says, verse 12, the law is not of faith. You can't uh, put them together. And he quotes Leviticus 18.5, he who does them shall live by them. At first, it doesn't make a lot of sense, because it seems to be saying, well, if you live by the law, then you shall live by, if you, uh, you do the law, you shall live by the law, but not if you don't have the ability to do it. Leviticus 18.5 is simply a, a, a summary statement of that this is God's holy standard. And the way you understand certain laws in Deuteronomy, the way you understand uh, kind of the purpose is how the prophets use that law later. How do they understand the application of that law? And what we find is whenever the prophets quote Leviticus 18.5, it's used to demonstrate that Israel has broken the standard. They always quote this and say, this standard you've broken, you can't keep. And Jesus uses this verse in the same way as well. Go to Matthew 19.16. Matthew 19.16, and we let's look at the rich young ruler where Jesus also quotes Leviticus 18, verse 5. Go to 19, uh, Matthew 19, verse 16. The rich young ruler comes to him and says, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Remember, in the days of Jesus, they're, they're living in a a works-based righteousness system. And the rich young ruler is considered to be, of, of all people, he's going to go to heaven because he's able to give a, a lot of offering and alms. And so if anybody's going to get into heaven, it's this rich young ruler. But the rich young ruler realizes that this theology doesn't sit right with his conscience. There's something else he needs to do. He's under the power of the law, he, and he, he feels it. He knows it. And so he asks, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to have eternal life? And then Jesus says, why are you asking me what is good? There is only one who is good. All men are sinners. And then Jesus, in the second half of verse 17, he quotes or he paraphrases Leviticus 18.5. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. So Jesus is saying, this is the standard. This is the holy standard of God nobody can keep. And the rich young ruler said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, 
you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law, right? Deuteronomy. And the young man, in self-delusion, lying to himself, he says to Jesus in verse 20, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus, in response to prove to him he cannot keep the law, prove to him his inability, he recites the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, in so many words, when he says to him, he's going to prove it now, okay, well, if you kept the law, keep the 10th commandment, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. When the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Jesus says, you think you can get into heaven by keeping the law? Okay, keep the 10th commandment. And, and instead of the young man believing in Christ and repenting and saying, I can't do it, I need to believe in you, he, he goes away. And then Jesus concludes this, says to the disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. A rich man who thinks he can buy his way into heaven or do good things. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the, uh, the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a Pharisee or a Judaizer or somebody who believes in this work-based salvation to enter the kingdom of he God. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished. And who can be saved? This rich, pious... Judaistic follower cannot be saved. Who can save? And verse 26, Jesus said to him, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. God can do this. He's got a plan. The plan looks like, hello, look at me, I'm here. Faith is, go back to Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. This is Paul's point. Faith is an entire different Dynamic Faith is trusting in someone else. Law is a perfect standard nobody can keep. There are two different categories, two different economies. Law can never be of faith because of just the, 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 the inherent nature of the two dynamics. The law is an objective standard outside of, per, of a person. Law, faith is, what, is when you realize you can't keep the standard and you, and you depend on somebody else to get you into heaven. And so Paul proves from the entire Old Testament, Old Testament uh, history that the law cannot save you. Deuteronomy says the law places you under a curse. Habakkuk confirms righteousness has always been by faith. From the beginning of, uh, from the beginning of Israel's history to the end of their history. Uh, Leviticus says that the law is a standard that nobody could ever keep. And then next, in, in verse 13, Paul says, you know, it might seem that I'm against the law... But, I, but let me tell you, I just know what the law cannot do. It cannot save you. But, but I do know what the law can do. The law can point you. It can show you the one who can save. And the climax of Paul's Old Testament exegetical argument for salvation by faith alone, that he started back in verse 6, comes in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written... Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so we move from focusing on the curse of the law in verses 11 and 12 to a focus on faith in verses 13 and 14. And Paul says in verses 13 and 14 that Christ's payment on the cross buys believers from the curse and gives them promised blessings of the gospel. Verse 13 begins with the word Christ, the Messiah the king of Israel. And it's deliberately contrasted with the many or the all in verse 10. It's to show the difference between God's intervention in Christ and man's attempt to save himself through the law. And man fails because of his inability. But the king succeeds because of his victorious ability to save. Those who are not able to do the law are now rescued by the Messiah in verse 13. One system, 
is utterly unable to save you, verses 10 through 12. The other system shows a complete ability to save, verses 13 and 14. What did Christ, the Messiah, the King do for us? Verse 13, He redeemed us from the curse of the law. The word redeemed means to deliver, but more precisely, it means to purchase something under someone else's control and to place them under one's own jurisdiction. Both the idea of sacrifice from payment and liberation from a power are in view. And so the curse of the law is portrayed as this controlling power, but faith in Christ can completely dominate the curse of the law. Faith in Christ can overcome every failure of the law. Christ has greater authority than the curse. Faith in Christ overcomes the curse of the law when the law surrenders in defeat before faith. This is the idea of the first part of verse 13. Verse 10 said you were under a curse if you tried to earn your way into heaven through the law. Verse 13 says, but when Christ redeemed you, the result was this transference from the slavery of the curse to the freedom of the gospel. Doing the law to save yourself locks you under a curse. Israel's history in the Old Testament proved that. The law can only produce this inescapable inescapable slavery. The law cannot solve the problem of the curse. Only faith can free you from the bondage of the law. What was that payment? Christ became a curse for us. And the result of Christ's work of redemption is twofold in verse 14. The blessing of Abraham, the blessing of justification, and the promise of the Holy Spirit through faith. By faith in Christ, we can can receive the fullness of Christ's blessing. But this begs begs the question, how can Paul prove that from the Old Testament? How can Paul prove specifically that Christ is able to become a curse from his people? He needs to prove it from from the Old Testament scripture. Saying it so doesn't make it so. And so what he quotes in verse 13 is Deuteronomy 21, 23. Cursed is... Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so turn to Deuteronomy 21. This is where it kind of gets gets a little tricky. Probably the first time in six years I was like, oh, as I was getting to this part of the sermon, I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. Uh, And uh, I read an entire people. Most a, a good amount of a PhD thesis to figure it out, and I, when I finally figured it out, I was like, "Man, I wish I, I didn't know it. I wish I had the wrong interpretation. It would have been so much easier." Uh, and uh, this, uh, go, go to chapter twenty-one, twenty verses two, twenty-two and twenty-three. And these found these verses are found in a context, and the context is of these various stipulations all related to the sixth command not to murder, do not murder, or positively positively stated to preserve and value life. Uh, Verses 22 and 23, the the verses that Paul quotes in Galatians 3.13, is the final stipulation in this section uh, about not murdering, about the sixth command not to murder. And this section about, uh, about the sixth command, it begins in chapter 19. So go to chapter 19. And then it, it progresses in a downward spiral until the end of chapter 21. And what do you find in, in, in chapter 21? Uh, God establishes in the beginning of chapter 19. Go back to, go to 19, the beginning of chapter 19. Uh, what do you find here is that he establishes these cities of refuge... The three cities, verse 2, and verse 4, if somebody uh, accidentally kills another person, he strikes down his uh, friend without premeditation, uh, like he goes into a forest with his friend to cut wood, verse five, cut wood, verse 5, and his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree, and the iron head slips off the handle and strikes his friend so that he dies. 
what happens if that usually happens back in this ancient time if you did that you, you would go to their house and you said you know we were in the tr we were in the forest i was trying to cut the tree and the and the, the axe head flew off and i'm sorry your husband's dead or your brother's what happens the family they all pick up axes and try to kill you and so god says okay uh, do not murder the the the, the stipulations the the, the application of do not murder is I'm going to set up these cities of refuge for you. You can go and seek protection. Because you can't stay in your own city because everybody in the little city loves the guy you just killed. So you've got to go to another city uh, to a place where nobody knows the person you killed. And then you can find safety. Uh, and, and that it progresses, uh, uh, continues to talk about these stipulations of the sixth command. And, and, and you go to... Uh, Chapter 20 continues, uh, 1 through 9. Let's say there's a war. Verse 2 of chapter 20, uh, drawing near to battle. And you, you want people, people, you want to fight in a war. You don't want them, you, want, you don't want cowards. You, you don't want uh, people who are uh, uh, not wholeheartedly committed to this. And so to preserve uh, unnecessary death in war, uh, Chapter 20, verse 5 says, you know, is there somebody who built a new house? Let them go to the house. Um, is there somebody that just planted a vineyard? Let them return to the house and let them finish it. Verse 7, a man just engaged to a woman. He hasn't married her. Do you think he's really going to be concentrating on the war when he just got engaged? I don't think so. Let him go back. And so he's preserving life. Uh, he's this, the, the commandment, do not murder, is being uh, applied. These are all the situations where you do not murder. And, and, it, and it, it spirals downward. It gets more serious. And we, we get to chapter 21. And, and now you get to the last two stipulations, with, which are the most serious. 21, verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they discipline, he will not even listen to them. There are cases where you do kill. There are cases. And those are, very, those are very few exceptions. And the last two exceptions are found at the end of this section on do not murder. One of the exceptions is if you have a rebellious son, a really bad son. Now, I'm not, gonna talk, I'm not talking about, you know, he didn't clean his room and you can kill him. Somebody horrible, somebody a criminal almost. And he says, this is what you do to him. You told, go to the elders of the city, verse 20. This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not listen to our, our, our voice. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him, and he will die. And so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. But, you know, the family is the basic unit of the society. When the family falls, the whole nation falls. And so this is really important. When the son wreaks havoc in the family, it, it disrupts the entire family. Uh, there's chaos between siblings and mothers and fathers, and so this is a very, very, very important stipulation of the Sixth Commandment, not to murder. There is exceptions. And so you see this downward spiral, right? But the worst one, the worst one, is what Paul quotes in Galatians uh, 3.13. Here it is, 22 and 23. And if a man has committed a sin, the judgment of which is death and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. And this is what Paul quotes. Because cursed of God is he who was hanged, so that you do not make unclean your land, which Yahweh your God gives you as an inheritance. Verse 22, if a man has committed a sin. This is not just any sin. This is a, the worst sin possible. And for the worst sin possible, the worst judgment is necessary. The judgment is death. But not just any death. Before, it was a death by stoning. No, this death, you hang them on a tree. See, this last part of the stipulation of the Sixth Commandment, it's for the worst criminal, for the worst crime. And there's this, this, this phrase, you hang them on a tree, it's very flexible, it can mean pierced through, it can mean hanged, uh, it can mean uh, uh, being driven uh, through with the stake. 
It's a public, bloody, violent death. And what it shows when somebody dies that way, it's a sign that this person has been cursed by God. You see somebody hanging on a tree, nailed to a tree, impaled by a a, a spear from a tree. It's, It's a sign that this guy has been cursed. But... When he dies, you shouldn't hang him all night on the tree. You, you have to bury him on the same day. Because if you do, it renders the entire land unclean and guilty. So once he's dead, all day, but as soon as nightfall, he needs to be buried or the curse remains. These are the stipulations. Now, over and over, you see these stipulations in various places in the Old Testament. You see this pattern. You see this dynamic. Let's go to Numbers 25. I'm just going to show you two where you see it. And these, the way the, the prophets apply Deuteronomy 21, they reveal more information about it. They reveal more details. Not all the details are given in Deuteronomy 21, and so the prophets give you more details as they apply, these, as they apply this law. And so we see the Deuteronomy 21 in, in, in Numbers 25. And even though it came before Deuteronomy, it forms the basis of this law in Deuteronomy 21. In, 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 in Numbers 25, the entire nation commits a great sin. Verse 25, chapter 25, verse 1. The, be, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Indeed, they called the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. This is a horrible, horrible sin. They switch religions from worshiping Yahweh to worshiping uh, Baal, verse 3, of Peor. This is the worst sin imaginable. And so God, he curses uh, the entire uh, nation with the plague. Look at verses 8 and 9. There's a plague on the sons of Israel. 24,000 people die of a plague. The entire nation is guilty. But So how does the, how does the plague stop for this, the nation? How does it stop? It says, uh, the, verse 8, the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. How so? How so? Verse 4, take all who are the what? Heads of the people and execute them in broad daylight. And so, Phinehas, he goes up, he takes his spear in his hand, Verse 8, he sees a man sleeping around with a woman, and what does he do in verse 8? He pierces him. He pierces him. And once that man dies, then the rest of the nation who is guilty, the plague stops. But who's the one who dies hanging on a tree? A leader. Who's the leader? Look at verse 14. The name of the slain man of Israel was the slain with the Midianite woman who was Zimri, the son of Salu, the leader of a father's household among the Simeonites. So we learn that if a leader dies for his people, God's anger is checked. It stops. And the person who dies on the cross, who dies, I'm giving away the story, who dies hanging on a tree is a leader, we learn that. We didn't learn that in Deuteronomy 21. It said anybody. But the way the prophets apply it, it they, all, they seem to always apply it to a leader of a people. That a leader of a people can die for his people and check God's anger. You see this elsewhere. You see it many times. I didn't, I, I, it was nice, nice to you guys. And I, oh, I'm using two examples. Go to 2 Samuel. You see it again in a really clear way. 2 Samuel. And uh, the death of Solomon we look at his, his, uh, his, uh, his execution in 2 Samuel 18. What did Absalom do? What was his crime? He betrayed his father. He tries to take over the kingdom of, of David. He, he attempts a coup. He, takes, he, he attempts to take over the kingship of David. This is, a, this is the worst sin imaginable. You could commit no greater sin as a son of a king. 
And so God is going to curse him for that providentially. And how, what, what happens? He's running away. And then in verse uh, 9, his head caught fast in the oak, and he's hanging between heaven and earth. The mule passes under him. And you see what? Absalom, he's hanging on a tree. He's hanging on a tree. He's a leader of his people. His armies are being killed at the moment he's hanging on the tree. They're being slaughtered by, by the forces of David. And then what, what happens? It continues. Joab sees him. And then what does he do in verse 14? Joab takes three, peer, three spears and he pierces Absalom. He pierces him. And as soon as Absalom, the leader of the guilty people, die, look, verse 16, then Joab blew the trumpet. The people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained the people. The leader dies. The rest of the people live. And what happened? Look, verse 17. And they took Absalom and cast him into a deep pit in the forest and set over him a very great heap of stones. They bury him. They bury him, per Deuteronomy 21. So we learn more about Deuteronomy 21 and how it's applied. We learn more in in Psalm 22. Go to Psalm 22, and now David describes being cursed by God per the terms of Deuteronomy 21. And what, what do we learn in this? The, see, the, the terms, the principles of Deuteronomy 21 gets clearer and clearer as the Old Testament progresses. We're going to learn how Deuteronomy 20, 21 is going to be fulfilled in the future. And look at verse 22, verse 1. My God, why have you forsaken me? From, far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. David is describing his suffering in terms of a curse. In language of, of Deuteronomy 21, he uses these metaphors of somebody dying, being pierced, this horrible, bloody death. And so what do we learn from Psalm 22 about Deuteronomy 21? That the leader who dies for his people is not just any leader, he's the king of Israel. He's the king of Israel who's going to die for his people. And then in verse 6, he describes the curse. Psalm 22. I'm a worm and not a man, a reproach of men despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They smack their lip. They wag their head. If you're hanging on a tree and you're dying, people are doing this, right? Verse 12. Many bulls have surrounded me. A lion has tears and roars. Verse 14. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like a wax. It's melted within me. Verse 16, dogs have surrounded me. Look at the end of verse 16. They pierce my hands and my feet. They divide my garments. And so there's this picture of this death of a king. We don't know what for. And then the result of this death is what? Verse 25, praise. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. All the ends of the earth will turn to Yahweh. All the families of the nations will worship before him. This is the Abrahamic covenant, the fulfillment. And so we learn something about, about, about Deuteronomy 21 and Psalm 22. He's not just a leader, he's the king of Israel. And his death is somehow connected to the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, let me see if you've been listening. At this point, as we're learning more about Deuteronomy 21... Why can't we apply Deuteronomy 21 to Jesus just yet? Why doesn't it fit just yet? See, if it stopped here, Paul could not have quoted that in Galatians 3.13 because they would have said something. And they would have said this. The guy who dies on a, who hangs on a tree is a what? He's a sinner. He's a sinner. He's a guilty man. Paul, you can't quote that. So we need something else. We need another passage that helps us understand Deuteronomy 21, using those terms and and, and using those parts. We find it in Isaiah 53. What Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53 describes the death of a servant. 
Isaiah uses the terms and conditions of De- Deuteronomy 21. Why? Look at chapter 52, verse 13. This, this, this servant, he's a leader. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Right? Verse 5. He's pierced through. He, he, he dies. And then what? Verse 9. He's buried. Right? All the conditions of Deuteronomy 21 are satisfied. And the result of that is what? Justifying the many. Verse 54, shout for joy, O barren woman. Uh, uh, Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, for for more numerous are the sons of the desolate one than the sons of the married one. There's There's this blessing on guilty people because of Isaiah 53. But Isaiah 53 gives us information that the other passages didn't give us. And it's this, verse 5 that the one who's dying the worst penalty possible is dying for who? For whose sins? Our transgressions. He was pierced, he was crushed for our iniquities. So Deuteronomy 21, you can have a king, a leader, who dies for his people, and you can have that king die not for his own sins, the sins of those he dies for. And by the time we get to the New Testament, the apostles, they all get it. Go to Acts 5, uh, Acts, uh, Acts, uh, book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 30. Paul, uh, Peter, he understands this. Look, uh, Acts five thirty. Paul says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a tree. Did he, did he die on a tree? No, he died on a cross. Why does he say tree? He's referring to Deuteronomy 21. He's saying Jesus fulfills Deuteronomy 21. Uh, go to ch- chapter 10, verse 39. Peter says again, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Peter gets it. He sees the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 21. And then you go to Paul, Acts 13, 29. Paul is preaching in Galatia. And he's talking about Christ. Paul says in verse 29, chapter 13, And when they had finished all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree. Did he die on a tree? No. And what else did they do? They laid him in a tomb that same day. Deuteronomy 21. Go to Galatians. And the crazy thing is, Paul expects you just to know this as he quotes this verse. He's like, here, duh. So obvious. The law was never designed to save you, but the law does point to the one who can save you. Jesus was cursed so that we could be blessed, verse 14. Before God saved you, all of us here, to a degree, thought if there was a heaven, we'd make it because we, we're, we're good enough. You know, when I was a, a college student, I was like the worst guy in the world, but I still thought I was better than everybody else. I had my reasons. And that kind of thinking, Paul says, put us under the curse of the law. But when... Christ saved saved us. Everything's supposed to change, right? But if you think you're going to go to heaven because you you obey these new laws in the Bible, isn't that the same way you used to live? Why would that work if it didn't work before? When we first came to Christ, we believed he could forgive us of all of our sins. We trusted his work on the cross alone for that reality. We came to him by faith alone. And the reason why we still come to him every day today, years after, because we still commit the same kinds of sins we had before Jesus saved us. Nothing has changed in that regard. We brought our sins to the foot of the cross by faith when we first met Christ, and we still bring our sins to the foot of the cross by faith today because we still sin. There will never be a day when you don't need the same cross and the same Christ, 
Nothing has changed with respect to our sin. When you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you, every day you receive this forgiveness by faith. And then that faith gives you joy. And then that joy becomes this fuel for daily worship. Think about yesterday. What did you do yesterday, before you went to the party? If there was no joy in Christ, if there was no worship to him yesterday and Friday and Thursday, then who did you bring your sins to? Who did you bring your sins to? In the last three or four days, you and I, we have committed thousands of sins. What did you do with all of that? And there's not a, there's not a lot of options to that question. You, you either have hardened your conscience so much that your sin doesn't bother you at all, or you're so riddled with guilt, you, you spend the day just trying to keep your mind off of it, entertaining yourself, and, or overworking, or, or, or engaging in these mindless hobbies to get your mind off of a guilty conscience, or you thought your good works covered your, 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 your misdeeds and your, and your transgressions, or you went to Christ by faith and laid every sinful thought and deed and word at the foot of the cross. Those are really all the options you have when it comes to dealing with your sin, right? There's only one option that leads to true joy and worship, Christ. And if you went to Christ with all of your sins this week, then Sunday morning with others who have dealt with their sin in the same way, becomes this beautiful symphony of multiplied joy, this cascading worship. You don't need a professional band on Sunday morning to worship Christ. You just need a few songs that lead you to an old rugged cross. You don't need a dark room, bright lights, big stage. You just need a few saints who have prayed prayers filled with an old rugged cross. You don't need John Piper, you don't need MacArthur, you don't need David Platt to preach to you every Sunday. You, you just need a mediocre sermon that talked about a, an old rugged cross. I need people in the same life stage as me. I need children's programs and big buildings. You just... Need a small group of people who trust and love an old rugged cross. That's all you need to worship Christ on Sunday morning. An old rugged cross. The last verses of that hymn say, And I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. I will cling. I will cling to an old rugged cross like my life depends on it change it someday for a crown. We don't cling to the law. That'll kill you. It'll curse you. We cling to Christ by faith to find life in him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your spirit that let us through these, these deep waters of theology, of gospel theology. We see the perfection of your plan. We see everybody on board. We all know what's coming. All of the Old Testament, arranged and designed to prepare for the perfect sacrifice, to make clear of a perfect and complete sufficiency in Christ alone. A Savior and a Lord who has the highest power to free us from the greatest curse of the law. So Lord, we pray for um, the next few days 
you would help our unbelief. Oh, our little and weak faith. To, tr to, to trust Christ for all of our sin. And that as this faith grows, we would experience a corresponding joy and peace and satisfaction because of Christ alone. Yeah. In Jesus' name.